0: When I get nervous, it sort of just snowballs. I would try to have a reset moment in the test, where I would just sort of empty my thoughts and just relax, and then dive back in after 10 to 15
1: seconds. Hello and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Stage tutor Rafael, who scored a 174 on his October 2020 LSAT. Unlike most of the students I speak to here, Rafael achieved his gains in just several months. He struggled most with logic games and managing his test day anxiety. His first two official LSAT scores were just shy of 170, even though his PTs were well into the mid-170s. We speak about how he overcame those hurdles. So without further ado, please enjoy. I have seven Raphael here with me. Raphael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having
0: me. It's great to be here, JY.
1: So before we get started, definitely want to talk about your LSAT and your amazing LSAT score. But first, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So my name is Raphael. I'm from New York, born and raised in Westchester County. I lived in New York my entire life, went to school at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., studied political science. And at some point during my time at Georgetown, I, you know, became pretty set on this. I'm going to law school. So I began studying for the LSAT summer before my senior year, took the LSAT in the summer and fall. And then, yeah, I finished up my time at Georgetown in December of 2021. Currently, I'm living in Taiwan as a full Bright Scholar here, where I'm teaching debate and working on building a debate circuit in Taiwanese high schools.
1: So you just finished up Georgetown? Yes, I finished up in December
0: 2020. And then I worked at a think tank for about seven months before moving to Taiwan for my program
1: here. Your highest LSAT score is a 174, which you got in October of 2020, so right before you graduated.
0: Yeah, exactly. I was finishing it up during my my final semester at Georgetown. That was when I took the LSAT for the final time, October 2020.
1: Normally, is Georgetown like on an off semester or usually most people graduate in the summer? Did you just finish early?
0: I finished a little early. Yeah. I honestly wasn't really enjoying this whole online school thing a ton. So I wanted to (laughs) wrap it up a little bit early if I could and then just get to work, you know, make some money, get some real world experience. So I finished a little early. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Just occurred to me that COVID robbed everybody of their senior second semester.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Sorry (laughs) about that.
0: It's all right. It happened to everyone. Everyone was affected by this. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, I was fortunate to be healthy, to be able to, you know, be still in school that I was um, all things equal. I was one of the fortunate ones for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a great decision to just get out and start doing stuff. Yeah.
0: I enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: So you got your 174 October 2020, but before that, you had two other LSAT scores, official LSAT scores on the record, and they were respectively a 169 and a 168. And those two scores you received in the July and August 2020 administration. So altogether from your first official score to your final official score was only about three to four months.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: What was your, what was your diagnostic score?
0: I had a 160 on my diagnostic.
1: Okay. So did you see the improvements happen pretty quickly from a 160 to your first official score 169 is a nine point improvement? Did you get those gains pretty fast? Yeah. I think
0: for me, the thing with the 169 and the 168 was, I think more so just a little bit of some test day nerves, just not executing really on the real day that my first practice test that I took after finishing up, you know, the seven sage core curriculum was a 171 after, you know, a couple months of dedicated study. So I felt like, and then 173 after that, like, I feel like once I got through the core curriculum, I was making gains pretty quickly. But for me, the challenge was consistency, I think, and executing it on the real, the real day. But yeah, I would say gains somewhat quickly from the core curriculum.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a uh- pretty common thing that we hear from students is how to avoid that test day penalty. So it sounds like you had some experience, firsthand experience with the test day penalty. You're saying that you were already scoring in the low 170s, low to mid 170s, but then you went to take the test. And in July, you got a 169. In August, you got a 168, which I'm sure was disappointing to you. Tell us more about like what happened. Yeah, I think I did have a test day penalty.
0: And with the caveat, obviously, that, you know, 169, 168, those are really solid scores. But it was, A penalty vis-a-vis where I'd been scoring on my practice tests that I'd felt ready to sit for July. Like I think my last practice test before July had been 180 or something that I'd felt really ready for this. And then I just sort of freaked out on the real day. I opened the first section, reading comp, and I just was having a hard time focusing. I had a couple of technical problems. Like my proctor ended up accidentally taking control of my screen and highlighting a paragraph. I got disconnected during LR. The confluence of technical difficulties, plus just generally feeling like the stakes were high, just meant I sort of underperformed. And then August, I had the same thing, basically, where I just got really nervous on the real day. The battle for me was really just making sure I could continue to perform on the real day and not feel those nerves. But that was you know, frustrating, feeling like I was ready to sit for it in July, but just not executing on the real day.
1: Yeah, I mean, that sounds terrible. <laughs> July with the, your July test with the technical difficulties. I guess that was still early in the pandemic administration of the LSAT. I was about to say they're probably just ironing out the kinks, but as we are speaking, it's November of 2021. I've heard all the stories from October of 2021, so it sounds like they still have a lot of kinks to iron out.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's a very, I guess, complicated process, those thousands of test takers taking it remotely on, I guess, ProctorU and the LSAC site, that it is, I guess, logistically pretty challenging.
1: Yeah, for sure. But it sounds like your August test actually didn't have those technical issues, but you said you were still feeling kind of nervous.
0: Yeah. August was frustrating for me because I thought maybe this is the only test I'll get that doesn't have these technical issues. And then I just sort of blew it on my own a little bit. It was a combination, I think, of just being a little bit nervous. I think I tried too much to alter my routine the day of the test. And I can talk more about this in terms of a thing that is so important for the real day, having a consistent routine. Like I tried drinking some extra coffee to really, you know, juice myself to feel very energetic about it. And I think it just made me a little bit jittery, a little nervous. Did I think oh, I changed man. my routine too much for August. Definitely a thing to be cognizant of for people taking the test. Have a consistent routine. Treat it like just another PT you're taking.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like that was, I mean, it's hard to know for sure with these things, but do you think that was the main cause of your underperformance? Just the fact that you altered your typical prep test day routine?
0: I think it might be. And this is, I think, so important for students at the LSAT to not just treat it as studying for a test, but also just getting yourself in a good place for the test, psychologically, psychologically mentally, etc., that I wasn't really doing the sort of of whole-of-person preparation for the test until my October test, that I was in a good spot, I think, for July and August in terms of the content. And I don't think I improved all that much, actually, before my October test when I scored six points higher than August. But I do think I emphasized, you know, consistent routine the day of. I started meditating. I started exercising a little bit more, getting more sleep, that it really is a whole-of-person test, that it's not a thing you can just cram for. And of course, you have to learn, you know, logical reasoning, games, etc., but it's also about making sure that you're in a good spot to sit for that test. And I think that was the thing that I really underemphasized prior to October.
1: Yeah. Okay. That all sounds totally consistent with what I've heard from other students as well. The gains from August to October, like you said, is six points. And your 174, was that consistent with your prep test score?
0: A little bit on the low end for what I was scoring leading up to that test. But I think that a standard couple points test day penalty is fairly standard. Off the top of my head, I think my PT average for my last 10 or so leading up to that was 176. So two point test day penalty is fairly middle of the road that happens. It's just, you know, stressful experience, but it's not a six point, seven point test day penalty like I had before, of course.
1: Yeah, I think with two points, it's not even clear that could just be within the range of normal variance. Yeah. You're saying that there wasn't much of a difference in how well you understood the test in the last two months between uh, August and October. Like in in terms of your understanding, the fundamentals of logic, grammar, whatever, that was all Fairly stable going from August to October. Really, what changed was just your mindset, your habit, how you cultivated your routine.
0: Yeah. I think that's exactly right. That, of course, there were some small interim gains, but nothing that was like too, too uh, drastic. Maybe I got a little bit better at miscellaneous games, got more consistently from a minus one LG to like minus zero. Small, small stuff tinkering at the margins. But for the most part, it was really just the starting meditation, making sure that I was in a good headspace for the test. Because it's a brutal test. It's really stressful, especially when you realize that in a lot of cases, it will be dispositive for where you end up at law school, which is a big investment of time, money, and ultimately just strongly indicates what type of career you'll have. So I was putting pressure on myself and I was really anxious about this, which I think is why it was so important to be more relaxed going into it.
1: Yeah. Well, tell me more about meditation. How did you get into it and describe your meditation practice?
0: Yeah, definitely. It was one of those things that like, honestly, my mom just kept suggesting I do. And I kept saying, no, I don't have time. I need to study. And then after I, you know, listen scored, to your mom. Yeah, she ex- that's always the right advice <laughs> to listen to your mom. But after my, my second time getting a score that was lower than I had hoped for, I realized something has to change. I don't want to sit for this test more than three times. I know that they count the highest, but at some point they might start maybe frowning upon too many scores. I really wanted my third to be my last. So I figured I have to change something. Meditation was what I started doing. I downloaded the Headspace app, and I did the guided meditations every day for that. And I also just created a sort of breathing exercise that I would use even sometimes on the test, between sections, and even on the test if I was getting flustered, where I would just sort of breathe for just 10 seconds, sort of just practice emptying my mind, just taking sort of a reset. Because I realized that when I get nervous, it sort of just snowballs. I would try to have a reset moment in the test where I would just sort of empty my thoughts and just relax and then dive back in after 10, 15 seconds. So I would say practicing those two things, the guided meditation, but also practicing sort of having, you know, clear, completely unbothered thoughts almost while you're just trying to take the test.
1: Yeah. Tell me more about 10 to 15 second breathing exercise. Like when would you know you needed to do it? How many times a section would you have to use that technique? And what would you say if people were talking about that that? Everybody knows like we count the seconds. 10 to 15 seconds seems like quite a bit of time.
0: I guess the thing that really, the impetus for that was just realizing that sometimes I'd be reading a question and I'd be distracted by my nerves. Like, oh no, am I running out of time? Am I understanding this right? And that I wanted to learn how to sort of just empty those thoughts and just focus on the task at hand, which is easier said than done. So I wanted to train myself to do that. So what I would do is I would basically just, you know, close my eyes and just try to think of some object or think of some word and just keep my focus on that for a certain amount of time. Maybe it started out maybe only 10 seconds, but built it up to like over a minute. And then a derivative of that was Wait, basically... Wait, on the, on the no, test? No, no, sorry. Would... Not on in, not in the test. Not on the test. Outside of the test, just like beforehand oh, in okay, order to... Okay sort of train myself to stay focused on something without letting distracting thoughts creep in.
1: I see. On the test though, the uh, 10 to 15 second, Mm -hmm. when do you know that you need to like take 15 seconds to just reset? Yeah.
0: If I just felt a sense of panic, of nervousness sort of creeping in, I'm not understanding this question. Am I going to finish on time? I would just tell myself, okay, we're doing a reset here. I'll take 10 or so seconds, just, you know, deep breath. I see. Again, a derivative of that other exercise where I'd imagine, you know, some type of object or word, and I would just try to focus just on that, sort of cleanse my mind of the other distracting thoughts, and then I'd dive back in. And I think 10 seconds is, in the grand scheme of things, not too much. Like, yeah, it's a game of inches. You want to make sure that you have everything you can to do well. But at the same time, if you're distracted, you're not going to be on pace for the remainder of that section. 10 seconds is an investment. It's worth it if it gets you back on track, back being focused.
1: Right. I totally agree. I think in the scheme of a 35 minute section, you'd lose a lot more than just 10 seconds if you didn't realize that you were not following the thread. And if you just kept plowing away, we call these like time sinks. It could be like a full minute or more before you even realize that you're in a time sink. What I was getting at was I think one of the difficulties is precisely realizing that you need to take a breath. Is it just a feeling that, like, oh, I'm starting to get anxious about this? I'm starting to get flustered. That's kind of like a subjective cue. Were there more objective cues, maybe? Or or maybe there's not. Maybe it is just training your mind to be more attentive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be blunt, but I think it's just a sense of knowing when the section's not going well that some people are overconfident. They think every section goes great and then they don't do well. Some people are underconfident. They're always nervous, but they're actually knocking the cover off the ball. You need to train yourself to know when things aren't going well. And when things aren't going well is when you take that reset, either because you're just not performing well in the questions or that you're just not in a good headspace. You have that jittery sort of, I'm not understanding this. I don't feel like I'm getting it type of thing. So for me, it was, I think, two things. One, it was training myself to know when a section just wasn't going well, understanding sort of my confidence threshold for, am I going to get this one right or okay I'm realistically probably not going to get this one just having a more keen sense of what was going on underneath the hood and the second was just also I think a better understanding of my own nervousness when I get nervous on something on the LSAT I'll often just sort of go on autopilot I'll just sort of superficially just go through the questions not really think about them too deeply that's usually a sign that something's amiss which happened a bit on my first test so I sort of had to pick up those I guess those two signals and use that to know when to sort of decompress and reset.
1: Yeah, so it does sound like you're sensitive to your own subjective states of mind. That's the signal that you needed to do this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Do you recall, like roughly, how often in a section, or I don't know, in a prep test, how frequently you'd have to kind of reset?
0: I would say probably not more than once per test usually, especially as I, you know, started performing stronger and stronger on it. I would feel like I was mostly doing pretty well on the sections and not have that moment of sort of panicking. But one thing I would always be very adamant about doing is doing that in between sections. The LSATs—they're nice; they give you a minute or so break between sections and. I suppose I could do that to drink some water and take that time to relax that way. But I also wanted to have that sort of mental reset that you want to always start each section anew. If it was a really good last section, yeah, you want to keep that in your mind. But at the same time, don't be overconfident. If it was a poor last section, you really need to not carry that into the next. Because if you're trying to score, let's say, a 170, if you miss a bunch of questions in the first section, you're not you know, necessarily in a bad spot. If you do especially well in the next two, you can still get that score you want. And worst case, you know, If you didn't do as well as you want on the first section, maybe you're just trying to salvage the best score you can, even if it's not your goal score. The game is never really up until the test ends. So you want to always have a fresh perspective on each section and not just go in with its fatalistic, oh, I already messed up the section one. I'm not going to keep going.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Unless you're aiming for like a 180, (laughs) there's no reason to give up after a bad section. Tell me more about the sort of broader meditation practice that you would do, you know, outside the actual testing framework. Would it be like a daily practice? How long would you meditate? And I think you're talking about like keeping your mind focused, attention focused on certain aspects of your consciousness. Can you say more about that? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I would say there were two things I did. The first was I got the app Headspace and went through the guided meditations. They tell you to focus on this part of your body, move your mind here, which initially I was you know pretty skeptical of. I thought this is just something my mom's making me do. I'll do this perfunctory <laughs> job on this just to tell her I did it so she doesn't bother me about it. But it was actually very helpful and I was totally converted to its usefulness. I would do that once per day, a 10 minute guided meditation. And at first I found it pretty hard to focus on it. I would just zone out, not really be with it, which I figured was not just you know meditation being boring, but perhaps a microcosm of a broader thing which was sometimes getting too distracted, keeping too many things in my head at once. Which is a thing that I normally view as a feature, not a bug, you know, being able to do multiple things at once. But in the LSAT, you want to be laser focused on the question you're doing. So I wanted to work on my focus. And I think meditation, forcing myself to just focus on what the instructor's saying, was very helpful. So maybe 10 minutes a day of doing that. And the second thing was this sort of, I guess, breathing exercise of sorts. I would do more of a long version of it outside of the test, where I would tell myself I'll focus on some object or some word. For like, initially it was 10 seconds, but I was able to build it up to like over a minute of just focusing on that thinking of nothing else. Just sort of clearing the mind, which a derivative of that on the test was very helpful for being able to have that mental reset after a challenging section or something like that.
1: Yeah, I can totally see how that would be (laughs) coming very handy. It's actually harder than it sounds, I think, to direct your attention to a thing for a minute. It's kind of amazing how your attention just kind of darts all over the place. You don't really have too much. Well, it's hard to get it under control, especially when you're trying to decipher logical reasoning puzzle, and you know your hands are sweaty and you're just feeling nervous, and uh, (laughs) before. you know, you're not actually thinking about the problem. So it's really helpful to just be able to like crack a whip and just get your attention back on the, back on track.
0: Yeah, it's a process for sure. I think people shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is hard. It's a hard test and a stressful test. And it would be even if you didn't think the fate of your law career hung in the balance. Like that's <laughs> certainly just that context. I'm being melodramatic, yeah. but that context, yeah. you know, certainly does make it a bit more stressful. So it's so important to treat it as a whole of person type thing in your preparation.
1: Yeah. I mean, to the extent that you can fool yourself into thinking that this is just another prep test, it probably serves you well to be able to do that. Or short of that, at least behave as if it were just another prep test. That is to say, do all the things that you normally would do as if it were just another prep test. Meditation started in August? Yeah,
0: I would say it started in August. I think it started after I got my, well, it started after I got my August score back. I think I took the August test late August. So actually, I guess maybe September when I got the score back.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, Certainly one data point, not enough to prove anything, but consistent with the hypothesis and is in the right direction. Why don't we talk more specifically about the sections on the test? Which section did you have the hardest time with? Yeah, I think my path was fairly, I think, conventional for people who end up scoring in
0: the 170s of initially maybe struggling with games the most, but that becoming the strongest section by the end and reading comp being the one that just maybe has the smallest delta in terms of improvement start to finish, that I started out probably strongest in reading comp. Like, I think my diagnostic, I think I missed, like, maybe 4 or 5 on LR, RC, but then, like, 15, 16 on LG. I just had no idea what was going on. But By the end, I was a fairly consistent minus 0, sometimes minus 1 on games. But I just sort of was never able to break much lower than minus two, minus three on RC. So I would say RC probably towards the end was one where I only improved by maybe a couple questions start to finish. But games was just like night and day.
1: Right. It also sounds like you didn't have that much room for improvement. I mean, you're, you're starting at RC score. It's the envy of, uh, dare I say, most LSAT students as their target mm-hmm. score, right? Was it like a minus, minus five on RC, you said?
0: I think so. I'd have to double check my diagnostic. My diagnostic, I think, was minus four, minus five on RC.
1: I mean, minus four is, like, I feel comfortable saying that's probably, like, most people's target on RC, so that's really great. RC's hard, yeah. But, like, for logic games, tell me about that. Like, what did you do? Like, how did you improve from a minus 15?
0: Yeah, something high like that. Yeah, it was just honestly, you know, I think the foolproofing stuff, that I really just was diligent about going through the core curriculum and really just trying to own that approach, that I just sort of initially was a little bit fatalistic about it, that I'm not a math guy. One of the reasons I wanted to go to law school, I joke, and I felt like this was almost just too eerily similar to some of the math stuff that I really was not a fan of as an undergraduate. I think I'm good with words. I think I can read well, but the more problem solving, the more puzzle aspect of this I didn't like. But I just told myself I really just had to break it down and just really first understand it untimed. Then I can add the element of speed. And once I saw myself, you know, mastering games when I was blind reviewing them, getting them with unlimited time, I viewed that as progress. Like, I can do it. I just have to do it faster. So I was just really diligent about foolproofing everything. I kept a really detailed excel sheet where I tracked my time, my accuracy for every game I attempted. I would have a schedule where I would rotate through all the games every week to do them again. And over time, I just saw myself improving. I started missing 8 questions on LG. Soon it was like down to 5 and so on and so forth until I was sometimes scraping a perfect game score. And then I, with time I got more consistently minus 0 minus 1. Although I don't know my my section breakdown on the real day, but I'm pretty sure games is what actually did me in on the real day in terms of where I lost most of my points. So it's a little ironic, but I actually think games is where I lost points on the real day. But yeah, that was my general approach.
1: Yeah, I also find games to be more unpredictable. I guess unpredictable is just my way of saying like that's where it shows the highest variance with respect to nerves. Whereas LR and RC, I find that like it's a bit easier to keep the nerves under control. Whereas for games, like, man, when you're just sitting there stuck, you can't see that inference and like three questions in a row, you don't know the answer. That's scary. Right? Yeah. Like LR, each, yeah. each question is its own thing. You just skip it. Just can move on to the next question. But like games, that's yeah. I agree. So you, you did foolproof, and did you find that after foolproofing, like, all the games just started looking similar?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that was, for me, the big thing. Just realizing that the inferences are recursive, the patterns they do repeat over time. That once you figure out one of the five-star sequencing games, the rest will seem a lot easier, especially the similarly hard five-stars. That I struggled the most with the miscellaneous games, because I had a hard time finding patterns. But I actually sort of began a little project of sorts when I was studying to try to almost taxonomize the miscellaneous games. Like each miscellaneous game, I had like a Word document. I would try to create some category name for it and then put the games into those little categories. I don't know if it was actually very useful, but it made me feel better. Like, oh, okay, I've seen (laughs) this type of one, this one before. I just tried to taxonomize the untaxonomizable. I don't know if that's a word. Uh, to the greatest <laughs> extent possible. But otherwise, I agree. Yeah, it's about seeing patterns.
1: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, the frequency varies. Circular games are kind of miscellaneous. I mean, I think they've only shown up less than five times in the entire history of the LSAT, or at least the published LSATs prep tests. I guess they're kind of miscellaneous in that way. There are some truly weird games on this test. I think the point for the test writers is to push back against this sort of I can study really hard and just see the inferences repeat, pop up and repeat. The test writers want to do what they can to test your on-the-fly thinking, as it were.
0: Definitely. It seems like they are always trying to sort of break open people who do try to find patterns. So like, for example, some PTs, LR, they'll front load the harder questions because students are taught first five are going to be easier. Therefore, you know, you can go faster on those. They front load some of the four or five stars. Not to say you should not try to still see patterns, but the point is that your thinking should be flexible. It should be malleable enough that you can adjust to stuff like that when they do try to break the mold a little bit, so to speak, with something different that does not go according to that pattern.
1: Yeah, for sure. As of now that we were speaking, it's been about a year since you got your October score. To what extent have you stayed with the LSAT?
0: Yeah, I would say for the first six to eight months after my score, I didn't really keep up with it. I was doing other stuff, pretty busy, trying to graduate my first job after graduation. But I definitely was still thinking about the test a little bit. I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but I actually did enjoy some parts of the studying process. Not the stress, not the anxiety, but I did enjoy some of the content. And I took some time to, you know, help some friends who were studying with it, studying for it. And then at some point I realized, you know, maybe tutoring would be pretty interesting to do. In August, I started tutoring with Seven Sage, and that was really my first time coming back in.
1: Let's maybe talk about your perspective on the test from the other side right now that you've been done with the test for over a year and you've been tutoring with us for several months now. Maybe you can tell us a bit about what the test looks like from the teaching perspective. Even before you started tutoring with us, you had already been tutoring. So maybe you can tell us more about how you got into that and what that's been like.
0: Yeah, definitely. I got into the tutoring just because after several months of not thinking about the LSAT, I began realizing that I you know, enjoyed parts of the test. Obviously, I didn't enjoy the stress, the anxiety about the score, all that stuff. But I did enjoy the content. I sort of viewed it like, you know, doing puzzles, brain teasers, and I I found it enjoyable. So I wanted to get back in the game a little bit, and I've been tutoring since August. In terms of other perspectives, I guess two things I would say. The first is that I know this is sort of a little bit cliche, but if you want to learn something, the best way is teaching it. That I feel like my understanding of the test is honestly leaps and bounds above where I used to be when I was just studying for it. Because it's one thing to sort of look at a question and say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think I get this. But it's another thing to have to have a much more rigorous standard of explaining it to a student who doesn't understand it and will call you out if you explain it poorly. And, you know, being sort of grilled on, no, you're not telling me why choice C is really wrong. Why is this wrong? That tutoring is a great way to learn more about things. Even if you're just studying for it yourself, you're not a paid tutor or something. It makes sense to still work with friends, especially those who are lower scorers, to explain stuff to them, teach them it. I guess the second thing I've realized is just how true this whole patterns thing really is. That yes, there are exceptions. The LSAT will sometimes break the mold, but a lot of things are truly recursive. That at this point, I think I've done or taught every question on the LSAT, and you can just read something and then realize, oh, yep, I know what they're going for. I don't know what question number this was or what test, but I've seen them go for this before. And it really is just recursive. There are only so many ways they can come up with logical flaws or only so many ways they can do a sequencing game, That it really is about patterns. Which is why, as a student, the actionable takeaway is to expose yourself to as much material as possible. You really should be taking regular PTs. You should be doing sections regularly. Don't be this as a one-month study jam, because it doesn't work that way. You need to train yourself to pick up on those patterns in the long term is really the way to effectively prepare, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, one month is crazy short. <laughs> That's, yeah. Have you encountered that in your tutoring where students have like sort of unrealistic time horizons?
0: i heard realistic time horizons for amount of improvement. And the reality is that it's just hard to improve a ton over a short period. Obviously, there's some exceptions. So like someone who says, I don't know what logic games are. Can I improve five points in a month? It's so like, yeah, you could, because once you understand literally what logic games are, maybe you'll go from missing 15 to missing 10, stuff like that. But generally speaking, except in cases like that, where there's only room to go up, I think it takes time. And it really is just, you know, a process that can have plateaus. I was sort of machine gunning on the same score at a plateau for like a month and a half in my studying. And that just happens. You're retraining your mind to think. It's not like, you know, a content-based test where you're just learning, memorizing history facts. Or it's not even like, you know, say the bar exam, which is a little bit more content driven. This is much more not about memorization of facts, but rewiring how you think to think more logically, a way that we don't tend to think in our normal everyday lives, in a way that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. That just takes time.
1: Yeah, for sure. I've been teaching this test for going on a decade now, and I still feel like, well, I feel old first, but I also feel like um, I'm (laughs) learning new things on like a daily basis. I mean, there's just a lot of depth there. What would you say if you just sort of take a survey of your students? What would you say is a sort of repeated error that you see a lot?
0: I think, honestly, it's people wanting to take practice tests too often. Practice tests are very helpful, of course. But there is such a thing as taking them too often. I think for two reasons. One is that it can just frustrate you. It can almost become compulsive, right? I didn't do well in this last one. I better take another one. And then you don't do well in that. You're like, oh, I want to do it again. It's sort of like, you know, going to the casino and you don't do well in one game. You just want to play it again to get your money back and so on and so forth. But PTs really are just a thermometer that tells you how you're doing at a point in time. And that data point sometimes can have more noise than signal. And that's okay. And I think that you don't want to rely on PTs for almost psychological vindication that you're studying is going well. It's just one data point. But of course, it's also using up material that you need for future study, that you only have so many PTs. You can't just email LSAC and say, hey, print me a new one. That's just not how it works. Once you use them, they're gone, which means that you need to try to, of course, save them, especially the newer ones that are most useful. Like, I'd much rather you take PT-89 than take PT-4, because the test has changed since the early 90s. So I think, you know, saving the test, being thoughtful with allocation is something a lot of students don't initially think about. I'll hear from overeager students like, oh, I'll take a PT every other day. And I just think, I mean, I respect the ambition, but that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. But that's people's intuition. More is better is the intuition.
1: Yeah, and for sure. PTs are a scarce resource. So you have to plan around it like you would any scarce resource. I mean, I think what would you say like everybody's cases are different? I'm sure there is somebody out there for whom taking one PT every other day is the right optimal approach. And I think we just have to speak in generalities and probabilities. And it's pretty uncontroversial to say that that's not the right approach for like 99.9% of people, if not more. But like, what, what would you say just sort of rule of thumb number of prep tests?
0: I think two a week is a good number. I think it depends on your schedule, of course. If you're working full time, maybe that's just a Saturday test you take, and that's kind of it, once a week is acceptable. If you're studying close to full time, I still wouldn't do more than two or three. That I was doing three for a good part of my studies, because my thinking was, I'm trying to build consistency, and I wanna just, you know, get as much game day practice as possible. But towards the end, I started trailing off a little bit, doing two a week instead, just because I realized if three was getting me a little bit nervous. I wanna just have more time in between. I was studying pretty close to full time, the summer before my senior year when COVID shut down, when the world was ending and COVID shut down pretty much everything. But I'd say two is a good number if you're studying more than intermittently. And if you're doing part-time, juggling a full-time job, first of all, I really respect that. That's difficult to do. And I think the people who do that. That's really impressive. But then I think for those people, once a week, I think is maybe a more realistic number.
1: Yeah. I think a good way to think about this is how much time do I really need to get everything out of the PT? Because after you take a PT, you really have to like pour over it to get stuff out of it, right? All, all the utility comes not from the two to three hours that it takes you to take it. That's not where you're getting value out of the PT. That's just how you generate the signal. Where am I right now? It just takes two to three hours to generate that one signal, unfortunately. But to get value out of that prep test takes even longer, much longer, many, many hours, days of pouring over what you did, trying to like kind of retrace your thoughts, figuring out where did I take a wrong step in my reasoning that led me into trap answer choice D or whatever, you know, that's the kind of stuff, like how do I avoid that in the future? Because that's the kind of work that'll result in a change in your prep test score from one prep test to the next prep test, hopefully up. So Absolutely. yeah, it's not, it's not really yeah. about the it's not about the PT. I, I just feel I do feel like a lot of people who take PTs in rapid succession might be shortchanging themselves on that aspect of it, which is the actual causally important aspect.
0: Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think that bare minimum you should be blind reviewing. You should be having a wrong answer journal. Retabulate what questions you missed, you can go back to them. And people often ask me, How long should blind review take? The answer is that it depends. A 175 PT average scorer is not going to blind review as long as someone who is in the 150s, because there are just going to be fewer questions that they're not 100% sure about. But I think that the sort of non negotiables are that I don't think that even for the highest scores, blind review should be taking you less than a couple of hours. You really should be wrestling with those curve breaker questions if you are a very high scorer and really should be retracing your steps. I think the other non-negotiable is that for scores of any level, games should be minus zero on blind review. You can always just brute force it, always just try every choice and just solve it out in the most inefficient, most sort of algorithmic way if necessary, untimed. But I think that there's no reason to ever not have a perfect games on blind review. But I think otherwise the time it takes will depend. But generally, I think more is better when it comes to blind review time. Like, I'll never say you spent too much time blind reviewing this. I wish you thought about <laughs> it less. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's no, there's no ceiling, really. And whatever ceiling there may be is highly variable depending on your situation. But there are definitely floors, right? For, yes, exactly. For games, exactly. Minus zero. For everybody, you know, untimed and logical reasoning. At minimum, you got a blind review, the ones that you're not sure about. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you made about even if you're scoring really high, even if you've already crossed the 170 threshold and you're missing like what four on logical reasoning, you're still trying to get from minus four to minus three or minus four, minus two. And those are almost like by definition, those are hard points to pick up because all the easy ones you collected already. I mean, it's really just on you to crack the pattern. There are patterns here, even the hard ones have patterns, they're just like better disguised than the way that you do that. It takes time for you to, you can just read what someone else wrote about what the pattern is and whatever like that, that's definitely helpful but it's no substitute for you figuring it out yourself because you you're just making your mind make the connections you're forcing your mind to actually make those connections and that's what's going to increase the chances of your mind making those same connections again the next time you see the same question far more likely than just you know you, you want to get some external validation sure or verification rather that you're thinking about the question the right way but it's not a substitute for you just working it out yourself
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also is why teaching is so helpful for, you know, building understanding. That it's not just, oh yeah, I think I sort of got this, but I have to explain it to a student who's going to say, no, that doesn't make sense. You need to tell me more about why C is wrong. That it really does force you to not just, you know, write some words down and move on. You need to sell it to another person who's curious. Is paying you money for good explanations bluntly. And if you can't meet that threshold, you're not doing your job, which is why teaching, I think, is so useful for building understanding. And it's a thing you can tap into even while you are still a student, teaching the test to people who are maybe a little bit weaker than you.
1: Yeah, this is mean you're going to be taking the out again for a time. <laughs>
0: not, not planning <laughs> on it. Uh, yeah, it yeah, would be still unfortunate. Not, still not a fun
1: Still not a fun experience. Hopefully not. Do you have any stories about students who showed a very dramatic improvements or very rapid improvements?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I'm admittedly fairly early into my tutoring career, only a few months. But I've had students who sort of have that moment where it clicks, like where they're struggling to finish the section on time. You know, they're maybe skipping an entire RC passage. And then we go over some timing tips. And then a couple of sessions later, they're saying, hey, I actually attempted every question or I just went up six points on my PT, which is always nice because I think most people can point to a moment where they feel like things sort of started to click on the LSAT. Like I know I can. And I think that it's true for a lot of people I've talked to. So it's very nice to witness, you know, students of yours have that click moment and think that maybe you played some small role in bringing them closer to having that moment and that satisfaction of feeling like they're making
1: progress. Yeah, for sure. And the click moments happen independently, depending on which section you're talking about. I think for, probably most people have it for LG first. Logical reasoning also clicks into place. And it's a good feeling when you start to realize that these questions are not unique. They're all reincarnations. I would say even reading comprehension has a click moment when you realize that these answer choices aren't arbitrary at all. In fact, the correct answer choice has support in the passage. Something like 70 plus percent of the questions on RC are inference type questions. And yeah, I mean, the right answer has support, either explicit or it's implied. And it's just that activity repeated over and over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely.
0: That it really is just recursive. It's about seeing those patterns. and When you see those patterns, it helps you have that click moment for sure.
1: Law school is definitely still in the future for you, right? In your plans?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely planning on law school.
1: Okay, but you're taking a year off or at least a year off to do your Fulbright?
0: Yeah, at least a year off. So I'm interested in national security law. So I'm hoping to get some more experience in government in areas that are proximate to that field before I go off to law school. I think that's a a field that sort of rewards some experience. So I'm hoping to work in government for a few years before I go off to law school. But the specific, you know, I know the broad contours of the plan, but I'm still filling in some of the specific details as I go.
1: Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about so I think one thing that people
0: often ask about is, how do I improve on this test at various points? How do I get from 165 to 170, 170 to 175? Over some really ambitious people, you know, how do I get a perfect score? And I think the answer is that it really just depends on where you are. You know, if you're scoring in the 140s and want to get to the 150s, you're realistically you know missing more questions than you're getting right, which can feel daunting, but at the same time, it also means that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that you can pick up on. Perhaps the issue is you don't understand flaw questions. Well, if that's the case, you're missing the most common LR question, and you fixing that will yield dividends fast. Or maybe you just don't understand games, and you're attempting one game out of four. Just even guessing on all the questions, or better yet, having a chance of getting to all of them and having a real attempt at all of them, will yield dividends fast. But of course, as you you know score higher, there are fewer points that are on the table, and then it becomes more of a question of how can I grapple for those remaining points. So I think the hardest one, honestly, is you know getting from that 160, 165 point over that 170 hump. And at that point, it's really about being aggressive with targeting your weaknesses. On the flex, a 170 is, like, what, missing, like, 8 to 10 questions, depending on the curve, or on the 3 section, the 3 scored one. It's missing 8 to 10 questions. That's really just grappling for those points and really trying to attack your weaknesses. So if you have a problem where you just wipe out anytime you see a miscellaneous game, you need to focus on that. If it's hard science passages, you need to focus on that. That it really is just going to be much more about figuring out the small, particular things that can be giving you difficulty. And that's just even more true when we're up in the 170s. 171 to 175, that's two questions, maybe. And that really is just so much about really being super, super granular with your weaknesses. Really just having basically no weaknesses to get a score like a 175 versus a 171. That's just such a small difference at the margins, which... I think it's a very different approach to studying than trying to go from a 140 to a 150, which is also why many students are sort of ill-advised, I think, to retake a score well into the 170s, because you may very well just get the same score or lower that I think the LSAC data says that most students who retake a 173 or higher actually do a little worse the next time, because so much of that is just, there's no margin for error. And I'm curious what you think, JY, but I actually think that There's very little difference between a 175 and a 180 scorer. I think a lot of it honestly is just luck. No one is going to be a consistent 180 scorer. If you're scoring in the high 170s, you're probably bouncing around a bit within that range. Some 177s, some 179s, some 175s. Because that's one question, maybe two questions, that is making the difference there. And that very well might just be a question that you just don't really click with. Or they put a question in that just hits right at the weak spot that you have. Like maybe it's just a game that, it's a hard substitution equivalence question. Maybe the curve is just less favorable. There's so much variation when we're talking one question, maybe two, that I think that type of improvement is harder. But I do think that reliably getting into the mid-170s is doable from the 170s, is like the low 170s. If you are very aggressive about attacking weaknesses and the rest of it, you know, 175 plus, I think is more of a chance game.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think the top score on the outside is 175 (laughs) because everything above that is just a lot of it is luck, but it's all more or less the same. I think, I mean, back in the day when they released the conversion tables sometimes the difference between a 175 and a 177 is one question. And this would happen frequently. Nobody got a 176 on this prep test. You either got a 175 or you got a 177. And then nobody got a 178, right? So you either got a 177 or 179. So the difference between 175 and 179 is two questions. You're always going to have outliers, people who like can consistently score 179, 180. I remember students like that, but they're kind of a different breed, right? I tend to feel like with students like that, their outcome is in some sense overdetermined. They could have done anything, <laughs> they could have like picked up a random art book about arguments on Amazon and read it and probably that would have helped them get the results that they ultimately ended up getting. So that's what I mean by like kind of overdetermined. So there are definitely outliers. But I do think for most people, at least I haven't figured out how to bridge that last point difference. And I guess partially it's because I haven't thought about it very hard. I just don't think it's worth it. Your gains, your marginal returns a lot higher once you break into the 170s. And then from what once you're in the 170s, like, yeah, I guess always higher is better. But I think at that point, at that point, like, what are you really doing? You're trying to optimize your emissions. You're always trying to optimize your admissions chances, but I don't know that a 177 is better than a 174 for admissions. I'm actually not sure if that's true. I know in general, law school admissions officers want to bring their numbers up, but they also do actually want to put together a good class. So I'm not sure how those considerations weigh out in net. But I, what, I do, what I do know is that it's really hard to go from 174 to 177 consistently. It's extremely difficult. So that's where I'm like, I don't know if it's worth it.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine it being defensible for someone to retake a score, frankly, like over a 173. I think you're right about the admissions part of it. They're focusing their medians and no school is going to have a 177 median, they'd have to make so many concessions in terms of, you know, an interesting, cool class if they were being so mercenary about getting a 177, even if they had sufficient quantity of those scores to fill a class like that. You're right that they're not shooting for a median that high. And it's about the median, you know, how high you're above the median doesn't really matter. I guess there's more pop factor to a 177 than, you know, 173. But ultimately, if the median's 173, in the case of, you know, schools like Harvard, Yale, that I just struggle to see if they care a ton about how much higher above that median you are.
1: Raphael scored a 174 on his October 2020 LSAT. He is a Fulbright Scholar, a Seven H Tutor, and a future law student. You can reach out to him on our discussion forum at sevenstage.com slash discussion. Raphael, thanks so much for being on the podcast and good luck in Taiwan back to us safe.
0: It was a pleasure talking with you, JY, and thank you so much for having me.
1: Hi everyone, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you're prepping for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at 7 We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.